Hello everyone, welcome to our regularly scheduled Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to learn about the Dhamma, to study the Dhamma, both by listening to words about the Dhamma, by asking questions about the Dhamma, and by investigating the Dhamma. Dhammangkai napasati, seeing the, seeing the Dhamma viscerally for ourselves. So, as usual, we start off with 15 minutes of practice, of investigation, and and asking questions. So if you have questions, the 15 minutes is it's put first to allow time for people who have questions to post them in the chat. If there are no questions, well, it'll be a short session. As usual, this is for you. You people, everyone tuning in to ask questions you might have and hopefully get some answers that are helpful for your practice in your life. But either way, it's also a chance for us to, an excuse for us to cultivate mindfulness and to see the Dhamma for ourselves. So once you've asked your question, if you have no questions, just close your eyes, take time to bring yourself back. Remember, remember the actual truthful reality that's in front of you. Don't lose sight of it. Don't get caught up in conceptual ideas about me and you and Buddhism and practice. Just try and be present with experiences as they arise and cease. If you're new to our group, you can find information on how we practice and how we cultivate mindfulness, how we work to remember and to not lose sight of reality by visiting our website. And we have courses, and we have an at-home course, we have an intensive in-person course, and everything is free, so be sure to check it out. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering questions. Until then, please cultivate mindfulness on your own.
All right, that's 15 minutes. So from here on, if you have questions, again, just post them in the chat at any time. We'd ask that the chat be limited from now on to questions only. Once you've asked your questions, you can just continue. Stay mindful, stay present, and let's study the Dhamma. Thank you, Bhante. We do have some questions. Why is it generally asked to meditate with one's back straight? Well, it can be bad for your posture over time to really sit slouched, but we don't stress too much about one having one's back perfectly straight. If your back is a little curved, that's fine. If your back is straight, that's fine as well. It's probably, if you're comfortable sitting with your back perfectly straight, it's just more sustainable, better for your posture in the long term. thing about uh, mindfulness is it doesn't have anything to do with the the, the val- validity or the um, applicability of it the, the efficacy of it has nothing to do with the physical so the idea is whatever position your body is in you take that as an object of mindfulness there's no improvement in one's in one uh, position or one posture or another. That's the difference between mindfulness practice and other types of meditation, which often do require a very rigid and firm and strong uh, posture, the legs and the back and so on. Mindfulness doesn't require that. It, it, by its very nature, doesn't have anything to do with that. And the more you fixate on some specific physical situation, the 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 slower you progress, the harder it is to progress because you're, you're obsessed with control and improvement and expectations and so on, rather than just being flexible. I just lost a 16-years-old friend who died from prostate cancer. What is the appropriate response from our practice? Mm -hmm. Well, there are generally three things that I recommend based on the Buddhist teaching in regards to a person who passed away. The first is to consider our feelings, consider how it affects how it affects us, how it affects us in a negative way, usually. Um, and also to try and understand the difference between how it affects us and how we perceive it. So the perception that you lost a 16-year-old friend, I mean, that's a colloquial way of saying it. It's an ordinary way of saying it. But to take that as a, as a view, as a perspective, how you see it, you see it as you, uh, a soul or an entity, losing them, a person, uh, a friend, is all, um, all of that is just baggage. It's not actually true. It's not actually real. It's, it's on a different level 
from the reality, which is you are now having experiences what we might which we might describe as withdrawal or a lack of um, ful- fulfillment of expectations, right? Not getting what you want, as the Buddha said it. That's what's really happening. That's what's happening. And and also getting what you don't want. So having the perception of loss, having the knowledge of death, of 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 um the inability to get what you want is is in and of itself uh unpleasant. And so that's happening. And if we instead look at it as I lost something, you you lose sight of the more real situation of what's going on, because it's it's actually quite mechanical or mechanistic in a way. I don't know, me- mechanistic in a world in a way. It's it's um it's it's very cause and effect. There's the cause in regards to memories and uh, desires. Well, memories that lead to the desire and and the liking and the wishing and the wanting, and then the knowledge that you're unable to fulfill those desires. I can't see that person again. I can't talk to them again. I'm not going to have a repeat of those pleasurable experiences that I'm now addicted to, right? Um, all, all of this is actually happening, and you lose sight of it when you focus instead on on things that are fictions, that aren't real, the me and them and the friend and the 16 years and these narratives that we create. It's a distraction. It's why the word Buddha used the word sati. Sati means to remember or uh, to recollect, to to uh, bring the mind to the uh, reality which is present, which is here, and which has nothing to do with you or them. Um, often what we do when, when someone passes away is we um, suppress our feelings. We try to... Um, as Buddhists especially, we, we might try to pretend that it doesn't bother us, and that's a mistake. But also there's, especially when you, um, when you embrace these fictions, these, these narratives that I lost a friend, is we make more out of the feelings, and we wallow in them, and we, we use them like a weapon, like a tool. We carry them with us as though they're something valuable and good instead of observing them and, and seeing how they're causing us suffering and really letting go of them. Part of the view can be that it's proper to mourn, it's proper to, uh, like it wouldn't be doing them as a real justice if I weren't sad and upset. What kind of a cold-hearted villain would I be if I were happy and at peace when this person died? And that's wrong view. I mean, that's there, there's no benefit to them and there's no benefit to you. It's just absurd to think that somehow there's a benefit to mourning. It's not that there's a benefit, it's that it's unavoidable and something that is, um, well, not necessarily unavoidable, but it's natural, it's expected. It's expected because of the addiction. But that doesn't make it good, that doesn't make it beneficial, that doesn't uh, remove, it doesn't negate the fact that it's harmful, actually, and it's causing you sickness and, and suffering for no reason, for no good to anyone doesn't do them honor in any way. I mean, it doesn't even mean anything. The second thing to do is to uh, do something that does honor the person who's passed away. Try to do good deeds in their name. Try to reflect on the goodness that they brought to your life and try to uh, work to um, 
cultivate that and take it as a an inheritance, carry it on as their legacy. So any good deeds that they did, the great thing to do is to do good deeds in their name, saying this is for that person or this is um, dedicated to them because they were the kind of person who did these good things. And the third thing is to reflect on your own death. Death is a part of life and reflect on the, the truth of this uh, reality that uh, all beings that are born will one day die. It's uh, It helps you get a perspective, and these are related. When you think like that, it helps you get a perspective on your feelings, on your feelings of loss. When you realize that this is just a part of nature, and this has happened happens over and over and over again, and we've lost so many friends that you can't even count the number of times we've cried or mourned the loss of a friend. It just, it's incessant for no reason, for no good, for no purpose. And without mindfulness, we are just slaves to our, uh, our, uh, our attachments. And it's only through mindfulness. Ultimately, the best thing you can do is practice mindfulness. It's only through mindfulness that you can free yourself from likes and dislikes, attachments. I discovered that prefixing notations with the word it helps point my attention. For example, it thinks, it feels pain, it enjoys, it is rising and falling. Could this be doing disservice to my practice? Yes, this is a this is what could be called a gimmick. A gimmick to help your practice, help your practice and make your practice better in some way. And it's based on desire, expectation. It can be based on conceit, not wanting to, you know, wanting to be a good meditator, wanting to succeed, that sort of thing. Um, and it has no relationship to actual cultivation. Uh, the words are not uh, are, are a distraction. If you're focusing on the words, you're you're just creating, turning them into a distraction. The words themselves are just meant as a pointer. They're meant to point to something. And so using different words or trying to use better words or trying to make the words better, I mean, it's um, it's a gimmick. You're, you're doing something because you want your practice to be better. It is related to self. It's related to control. It's just bad habits, and it's feeding these all of these bad uh, characteristics, these unwholesome characteristics of, of greed and delusion. The the um, the challenge and the difficulty of mindfulness is a part of its value. And the real challenge, the real valuable challenge, is the, um, the neutrality, the facing without trying to control, without trying to fix. And it's, it's really hard to just experience things as they are. We are constantly trying to fix, trying to control, trying to change, trying to acquire and to remove, acquire good and remove bad. We're never satisfied, we're never content. And it's a real challenge to be at peace in the face, to be independent. The Buddha used this very good word that we often miss, Anisito Jovihrati, one dwells independent. 
Independent means you're not moved, you're not uh, phased, you're not um, partial to things being a certain way or not being a certain way, and so you don't try to fix, you don't try to make better. If your attention is bad, the whole point of mindfulness is to see that, to understand why it's bad, not to fix it. It's the seeing that fixes, it's the seeing that improves. The clarity when you realize, when you see the state of mind, when or when you just see, then of course your attention is better. Seeing clearly, your attention is improved. Seeing clearly, your focus is improved. Your concentration is improved. Seeing clearly, your perspective is improved. Seeing clearly, you become wise. You become free. You become independent. Is it possible to accidentally hypnotize oneself while meditating? Sometimes I wonder this and become concerned that I might be harming my mind during unfamiliar and intense states of mind. Well, the word hypnotize doesn't really have any meaning behind it. I, mean, I don't even know how real hypnosis is. If you've ever done work with a, hip, with a hypnotist, there is a certain amount of um, cooperation that goes into it. The person wants to be led, and they are led in a certain direction mentally. They are allowing themselves, they are encouraging the cultivation of these states. So um, it's possible to do things similar to that during what you might call meditation, but I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. It's quite different, and it's not the sort of thing that does lead you in any direction. Mindfulness is just about reminding yourself of what you're actually experiencing. So here you wonder. Wondering is something you can note, like wondering, becoming concerned. It probably is some sort of worry or fear, and that is something you should note, worried, worried, afraid, afraid. There's no potential for what might be labeled as hypnosis, the result of this. It's just a recognition and a sort of objectivity, reminding yourself that seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. Um, unfamiliar and intense states of mind, I mean, the best thing to do is to note. There's no mind to be harmed. The way the mind works is um, habits are cultivated. So one mind leads to another, and the repeated uh, inclination in a certain direction leads to the repeated arisings, one mind after another. And so harm can come about by cultivating harm, by cultivating harmful states of mind, which usually involve desire or aversion. Even fear and worry are going to be harmful, and they'll develop bad habits, and that will be what you might call harm. It's important to understand that still hasn't harmed anything. It's just stressful. It leads to stress. I mean, you could argue that it harms the body, but not the mind. The mind isn't something that harms it, that's harmed. It's just something that goes in the right direction or goes in the wrong direction. And even a mind that has become so polluted and corrupt can still eventually work its way back to going in the right direction. Mindfulness is sort of about finding the 
uh, freeing yourself from directions in a sense so that you're not becoming a better person or a worse person. You're letting go of the whole idea of heading in this direction or that direction. You're just trying to see clearly and let go as a result of seeing clearly, as a result of not judging or not trying or anything. How can relics help our practice? Do relics of the Lord Buddha and other saintly persons have power, or is this to be regarded as just superstition? Well, I mean, relics don't really exist per se. It's just a concept, and concepts aren't always a bad thing. They're not helpful for mindfulness, but... They are helpful. Well, they're not directly helpful. They can be indirectly helpful in terms of giving confidence. A relic is a piece of, of, of the Buddha's bone, and so it certainly triggers thoughts of the Buddha and thoughts of the Buddha's greatness and so on. And that's its real power, that the confidence and the reminder that they bring. I mean, it's it's a very psychological power. It's not superstition. It's just um a, a natural psychological reaction to being in contact with the bones of the buddha now there might be some physical power some physical greatness but honestly the, the that's all just going to be um circumstantial as well like there are going to be perhaps divine entities involved and i mean just people's perception of the relics of the, the the bones of the buddha is going to change the whole atmosphere surrounding them in, in any building that they're held is going to make it feel different just by the nature of our relationship to these things things don't have power in of themselves because they don't actually exist but there's a circumstantial power the circumstances involving them being coming from the Buddha. I mean, it's just very complex, complicated, complex. But surrounding any relic of the Buddha is going to be that complexity, including perhaps divine beings involved, getting involved and exerting their own influence. But again, none of that has any real weight or, or bearing on mindfulness practice. The best it can do is give you encouragement and pleasure and uh, states of calm and so on that come from confidence and come from the recollection and the memory of the, such a pure being as the Buddha. I see a lot of motion and color change happening when I am meditating. Also, free association with thoughts. Is this normal? There is no normal in meditation. I mean, normal doesn't have any any bearing. It's not actually beneficial to have normal experience, to have what you might consider to be normal experiences. In fact, one of the important benefits of mindfulness is to take you out of your comfort zone and to realize the potential for abnormality, to be shaken, to be disturbed, to be woken up, you know. Um, enlightenment is awakening, and awakening generally involves being shook up, having your complacency um, discarded or, or destroyed or uh, undermined.
by uh, the pretend, the realization that you're on shaky ground and you, what you rely upon is not worth rely not um not proper to be relied upon like our body or our mind so if we rely on a stable mind we're going to be disappointed and we're going to become complacent so if we rely on normal or ordinary experiences then we're going to be unable to deal with loss change or gain that we don't want when you get so when something comes to you that is is unwanted we'll be upset so seeing strange things and having strange experiences is valuable in this way in that it cult helps cultivate a certain flexibility the ability to adapt and to be unshaken to be independent of experiences and so it's crucial that when strange experiences occur that you're you are quick to note them and to cultivate familiarity so that the change and the unexpected become uh, familiar or become ordinary become undisturbing no, undisturbing lose their power to disturb you so when you see, you'd say seeing, seeing. You also note your reactions as well, but yeah, mainly just note seeing, seeing until it goes away. Try to teach yourself um, the normalcy of, of everything, that it doesn't matter what you experience. Teach yourself to be unfazed by change, by the strange. When I hear something, I note hearing, but I notice that I have some perception of the sound being something. Should I note knowing to acknowledge the perception? You can, sure. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you can also just stay with the hearing, even if you notice that you perceive it as something. You don't have to note everything. Just noting hearing, hearing is, is perfectly fine. You're going to see lots of other things, like your reactions to it and so on. You'd only really want to switch if you start to react to it, like judge it, liking it or disliking it, that sort of thing. That becomes more important. Anything else is not going to be really important. Try and just focus on hearing. I mean, the Buddha did directly, explicitly state that we should try to not pay attention or not grasp at the particulars, the details of experiences. So it's not really going to be all that beneficial. But you can. I mean, you can, it's for, for sure, noting knowing. It's fine. There's nothing wrong. The only thing wrong might be the jumping. So you jump from one thing to another, maybe not in your best interest. Just saying hearing, hearing is probably generally preferred. I have heard people say that because animals must have suffered at the time of death, that negative energy will be transmitted to the person who eats it. Is this valid? I am scared to eat meat now. Uh, well, energy is, I guess, of two types, physical and mental. Um, and you have to be able to differentiate. The meat is just a physical thing. There's no mental involved with the meat. Um, and mental energy isn't something that be, can be transmitted mental anything is really just all on you and how you react to your experiences 
So it's possible for someone to feel bad about having to eat meat that came from an animal that suffered. But the being that suffered is not the meat. They've already left and have gone on somewhere else. They've discarded the body. So that physical thing is, is any, any energy that it might have is only physical energy. And suppose there were, and this is not true, but suppose there were some negative physical energy, the worst it could do is make your body sick, right? If there's something like that, which in fact is actually kind of true about meat. I mean, meat is uh, unhealthy. It can cause cancer and all sorts of other problems like heart disease and so on. So it, it does it does kind of speak to the the crudeness of of the whole process like the whole process of killing living beings and then uh finding nourishment in their flesh i mean there's nothing good that you can say about it it's the meat is carcinogenic and causes heart disease and all sorts of things i mean there's not really any real benefit to it um and i mean not to speak of the more glaring horror of the killing and the increase in cruelty in the world and that sort of thing every, every for every animal that is slaughtered there's an increase in evil in the world i mean the person who slaughtered is being more and more evil and the people involved are just cultivating evil so it's just it's not very good but but honestly when it comes down to the actual eating part that's not really significant what's much more significant is your your fear your fear is going to make you sick and that's negative energy your fear is something you have to be vigilant about so when you're afraid say afraid or worried it can be just worry and not worried worry those are unwholesome harmful and they create sickness physical and mental I have the opportunity to be an actor pretending to be a patient for medical students. I would be pretending to have illnesses so the students can practice their interpersonal skills. Is this wrong speech? No. No, it's not. I mean, it might be wrong speech for a meditator, but or for an enlightened being, like an arahant might not engage in it, but... It's no more it's no more wrong. It's not lying, let's put it that way. It's not even deception. I mean you can deceive people for harmful purposes without lying. But here it's not even that, because everyone knows that you're not that. It's practicing. We do that with report with when I teach people when I teach students how to teach, I will pretend to be a patient, pretend to be a student, and I will answer their questions. Or I will have them answer each other's questions or that sort of thing. It's maybe not the same. It's not really pretending, but it's kind of acting in a way. If you're acting in order to evoke emotions, like people who act in cinema, that's more problematic because you're intending to evoke uh, emotions, maybe negative emotions. It could be possible. I wonder if you could argue that if you're acting to evoke kindness and thoughtfulness like if you put on a buddhist play it might be okay if you enact a buddhist sutta or something i once thought about actually doing making videos of of uh 
enactments where you have the Buddha and you have a student. A big problem with that is nobody should ever be pretending or play. It's a it's a big uh, taboo to actually play the Buddha in the in cinema. So they tend not to even show him. Well, that's different. Yeah, no, my answer is generally not not something to worry about. You could think if you are engaged in meditation practice, you would have to abstain from that sort of thing, just because it's going to be distracting and it's a useless speech. It doesn't have anything, any relationship to your practice. So during an intensive meditation course, you should only engage in speech that is necessary and relates to either the practice or else your ordinary carrying out your daily life, like when you have to ask or you have to inquire about something. Are there any activities we should avoid right after the formal meditation which might be harmful, like watching videos, eating, etc.? No. No, you should try to um, extend the practice into your life try and use it as a um, as a starting point so go on from there and try and take it into your life to uh, have it make your your engagement with the world more natural so you you would use it to uh, pay attention to desires to do things and use it as a means to um, make better decisions about what you're going to do. So the watching videos can come from a desire to watch the videos, and your mindfulness practice should allow you to catch that desire and note it and not have to go and watch those videos. And eating, maybe you're not hungry, but you're craving something, and that craving is something that mindfulness practice should make you better able to catch and to free yourself from. But more generally speaking, just will give you a better um, perspective on what to do. So you will also um, not uh, have any artificial ideas about what you should and shouldn't do. You'll be more natural and you'll, you'll naturally incline to do those things that are right at the right moment because of your clarity of mind. You'll know that, ah, now is the time I should do this, or this would be a good thing to do right now. You just have greater clarity about what is right to do and what is what is useful to do, what is not useful, what is harmful, that sort of thing. Recently, after each meditation session, I have been wanting to use the acquired calmness and focus to contemplate the different body parts impermanence, etc. Is this good practice, or should I stop? Um, well, you'd be much better served by noting the wanting, also noting the calmness. These are things that can be very much um, objects of clinging, and they can lead you to have ideas because you, they lead the, the liking of the calming leads to craving for more and craving for better, and so you incline to do this or do that. You can become attached 
to jnana, to knowledge. And so you try to evoke more and more knowledge, and that's just craving and desire and attachment. You'd be much better served to continue being mindful. Again, this idea of just going with what's happening rather than trying to artificially cultivate something. I mean, that's what we're doing in formal practice. We have this artificial um, artificial walking, artificial sitting, but the artificial there is unrelated to our uh, mental activity. We're, we're doing something very banal, just walking back and forth. So it works. But artificially trying to direct your mind in this way or that way or increase this or increase that is its not really the way. Contemplate is not really a good, as a good um, means of becoming enlightened, let's say. It's not a really po- a positive uh, activity. Contemplation just leads to a desire to contemplate and an inclination to contemplate. It's misleading because we often hear that word used by translators, and the Buddha didn't really ever use the words that meant contemplate, not not like that. Um, yeah, so contemplate the different body parts is one thing you can do, and it's the practice of uh, it's a samatha practice, but it's also a sort of a protective practice. It's just to uh, observe and um, watch and pay attention to the body parts. So you you pay attention to skin, and you don't. I mean, you could even contemplate it in that sense because it's a different kind of activity. So yeah, in this context, contemplating the body parts, just in the sense of reflecting on the nature of them, there's this whole activity you can do to try and break the body up into pieces and just be aware of the hair as as like rice stuck in the the soil of the scalp and that sort of thing. Contemplate the nails as growing out of the the, the bones on your hands and that sort of thing. So that is a protective practice, but but yeah, the impermanence, it's where you get into talking about impermanence that yeah, that's why I sort of answered the way I did is because it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. You can't contemplate impermanence as a practice. You have to look, and impermanence is is uh, what you see naturally without without trying to. Anytime you try to... Um, experience impermanence, you lose sight of the practice that creates or evokes the awareness of impermanence. Is there such a thing as doing too much meditation in any given day? Well, not, I mean, not technically, but practically it's going to look like that for some people. And it's not the amount, it's the um, the quality, the way you go about it. 
Um, or you could even say it's the, uh, the, the capacity, your mental capacity to to do to behave in a wholesome manner so when you do what we call meditation i mean it's it's a conceptual thing you're not actually practicing meditation right there's just moments of experience but what we call meditation will be some moments of mindfulness and clarity but it'll be lots of other moments of of delusion and attachment and aversion you, just because you're walking back and forth doesn't mean unwholesomeness doesn't arise. It's a big part of the practice to observe and, and overcome this unwholesomeness, to change. But as long as that whole unwholesomeness is there, it tires you out. Um, it, it actually can cause you to cultivate bad habits, um, especially as you get tired out by it. So if you do many hours of practice during the day, that involves unwholesomeness, like that, that, that includes the arising of greed, of anger, of delusion. Um, over time, it can just take over, and you stop meditating, and you start really um, uh, resenting having to sit and becoming averse to the practice, even uh, winding yourself up, right? So that's when it gets to be too much. And for that reason, a, it's good to take breaks in between rounds. So you do walking and sitting and then take a break because it gives you a new perspective. It just changes your perspective. Rather than getting you know, stuck in a rut, it pulls you out. It allows for vimangsa, this sort of reflection on what am I doing right, what am I doing wrong, just for a brief time and, and then you know, go back and do it. But B, um, you know, put a limit and, and pace yourself and understand that you're only really capable of so much good practice during the day. And it's something you have to work yourself up to. This amount, quantity is something you have to work up to uh, in, in, in you know, relative to the quality. The more quality you have, you have, your greater quality your practice has, the more quantity you should expect to be able to uh, to accomplish. In the way of mindfulness, I fail to discern whether thinking is appropriate or not. An arahant has full control of his mental pathways, thinking, knowing we are thinking, and stopping anything excessive. Is this appropriate? Your only instructions are to note thinking, but this doesn't account for when we actually need to think. What is the instructions for voluntary intentional thinking when thinking is appropriate? I mean, first of all, the instruction would probably be to acknowledge that you can't meditate in that case because your inclination is to not meditate. Your inclination is to do something else with the mind, to intentionally think. It's not to intentionally be mindful. If you're not thinking, you're not going to be able to intentionally think. The point is that you don't need to think ever. Thinking is not a thing that you need to do. It's a thing that happens involuntarily, of course, but it's also a thing that we want to do because we want other things. But we don't need to do anything. I mean, we don't need to breathe. We don't need to eat. 
these are more glaring things that you would think we need to do, but we don't technically need to. If we don't, we'll die. I mean, you can't say such a thing about thinking. It's not like if you don't think, you'll die. And so it certainly isn't something you need to do. Now, when you say need, you're probably talking about in a worldly sense. And well, that's the point, is that you're not solely a meditator. You're not an arahant if you have worldly needs, like needing to do this or needing to do that, or if you have worldly desires. Arahants do think, but it's sort of a natural process, and they are just mindful of the thinking. Is getting absorbed in the images that appear in meditation a sign of low sati, or a sign of clinging? Is the reason why I get so immersed important, or should I just keep noting when I remember to? Yeah, well, getting absorbed is a bit vague and probably inaccurate. The question is, what do you mean by getting absorbed? Probably there's a liking or a disliking, there's a reaction to them a wanting or an aversion, a fear. There can be lots of different ones. Usually a wanting or a liking when you see a desire. Or it can, you could might call it curiosity, but curiosity is still a desire. Um, so that, yeah, that's what I would note. There's no such thing as getting absorbed. There's no thing that gets absorbed into the images. There's just like an obsessiveness, like a craving or a desire. And you should note that. And in, and in fact, you should also just note seeing, seeing to, to change that about yourself. Uh, what you describe as getting, what you call getting absorbed is obviously not being mindful. So is it a sign of low sati? It's not low sati. So you have no sati in that time. If you're not saying seeing, seeing, you're not really cultivating sati. And if you do, you'll see that's quite a different state of mind. So yeah, you even mentioned a sign of clinging. I mean, that's the point, is that getting absorbed isn't real. There's just the... There can also be a sort of a laziness where you you let the mind, or you're, you're just ignorant about, you're not even... The fact that you have to ask about whether it's a sign of clinging indicates that might be the case, where you're just not really aware even that you're liking or wanting as so, well which is a, the biggest reason to start practicing mindfulness. That's what mindfulness does, is designed to change. It creates that clarity that allows you to see when you like something or dislike something or so on. So it's crucial that you're not seeing, seeing. What is nirvana? Is it possible to experience some sort of nirvana during meditation? For example, when one's undivided attention is on the rising, falling of the abdomen? Well, it is a word, and it is used in at least a couple of different ways, but the technical answer that's probably most appropriate is that nirvana is cessation. Or it's the... Ob yeah, no, let's say it's the... Nirvana is cessation, so it means... No seeing, no hearing, no smelling, no tasting, no feeling, no thinking, no arising of consciousness. So it's a complete and utter peace. And peace is a is a, a is a extrinsic quality. I mean, we call it peaceful, but it doesn't really 
it's just our description of it. We, we say it's very peaceful, but it's actually just cessation. But in contrast to the incessant arising and ceasing of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, it is incredibly peaceful and it is perceived that way. So a person after they experience nirvana, or we say nibbana in Pali, they have this intense sense of peace, of, of freedom, of uh, liberation, just profound and, and um, indescribable, uh, unmatched by anything they've ever experienced before. It can last for hours or even days. They're just changed by that experience of peace. I mean, that's why nirvana is, I mean, it's just so powerful. Nirvana is also used to describe the life of an arahant who has experienced this and who has, as a result, become free of any desire for arising. And it's also used to describe the death of an arahant. When an arahant passes away, there's final cessation, so there's no more arising in the future. But describing it as peace is helpful because that's how it's experienced. It's experienced as the most peaceful thing in existence. In the most peaceful thing that exists in reality. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There's one question left in the top tier. Have you got time to answer? I'm ready. Thank you. Is delusion always present when the other defilements arise? Yes. Yes, delusion, uh, I mean, what we call delusion, that's just an English translation. The word is moha. Um, I mean, delusion's pretty good. I, don't, I have no criticism of that translation. But, I mean, I guess it could be a little misleading. I mean, delusion, so moha is kind of like the opposite of sati. It means sort of muddled or murky states of mind. It's like darkness. But murky is kind of the idea. Moha probably has some relationship to the English word murky etymologically or some word like that. Muddled or murky mud, right? Muddy. Uh, that's the idea. So the mind has to be clouded for these things to arise because a mind that is perfectly clear cannot um, give rise to, cannot trigger anger or, or greed. Thank you, Bhante. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask and answer today. Okay, thank you all. You're welcome to say sadhu in the chat. We open the chat up to comments and uh, everyone can say goodbye so you can say what you say anything mindfully in the chat anything you like now that's mindful and wholesome positive and supportive say things in chat that are going to make the people who read it feel uh, happy and lead them to greater peace so thank you all for asking your questions and for joining and for cultivating mindfulness 
Thank you, Jim. Uh, Chris, I guess Jim is here as well. Yes. For helping. And may all of us, may all beings here and all beings not here find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.